What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Josh, those hot pockets in the Film Spotting fridge, those were mine. Come on, man. I'll, I'll go get some coupons for my apartment for you later. Oh, I don't want coupons. I want real Hot Pockets. Can't eat a stupid coupon. Fine, I'll pick some up at the store then. Right now. Hot Pockets and a big-ass Mountain Dew. Buy it. I feel like we have this conversation every week, Adam. (laughs) That's because you're always eating my Hot Pockets and drinking my Mountain Dew. (laughs) A clip there from the dark new comedy Buzzard. Our review, plus this week's top five movie characters on the fringe. We'll also introduce our version of the NCAA tournament. It's time for Film Spotting Madness. Get ready, everybody. All that and more. You know what? This Hot Pocket has ham in it anyway. Ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 2 million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For new accounts, take 20% off only footage clips. Go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code FILM315. We're also brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, a rundown of some of the new titles they have available this week includes St. Nick, the gorgeous debut from American indie director David Lowry. His next film was Ain't Them Body Saints, a pretty big critical hit. That I was mixed on, but is luscious to look at and is certainly heavily influenced by Terrence Malick. It stars Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck. Also, Pusher, the debut film from the Maverick genre remixer Nicholas Winding Refn. He is the director, of course, of Bronson and Drive, as well as Only God Forgives. He came up recently on the show as I was talking about the new film from his wife, My Life, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, which looks inside their marriage a little bit and the making of the movie Only God Forgives. Pusher is one of those films based on my love for Bronson and Drive I've badly needed to see for some time. Can add it to my blind spotting list but Mubi can help me take care of that also out shadows of forgotten ancestors this is one of the great underviewed classics of soviet cinema by master director sergey parajanov it's a haunting tale of unfulfilled love driven by a hurtling style always some fascinating selections over at Mubi. all three of those i need to see every day Mubi's creators introduce a new title then you have 30 days to watch it that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy and you get that for just 4.99 a month plus when you use Mubi's mobile apps you can download films to watch offline listeners of film spotting can try movie free for a month just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now again try movie free for a month by going to movie.com slash film spotting that's m-u-b-i dot com slash film spotting You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh. I'm Adam. Bill Murray versus Tilda Swinton. Emma Stone versus Sam Rockwell. Just a couple of the tough first round matchups in Film Spotting Madness, our month long battle royale to determine Film Spotting Nation's favorite working actor. Much more on that later in the show. Plus, this week's top five characters on the fringe. But first, our review of Buzzard, a new indie in which an unruly office temp fights the power while wearing a customized power glove. Dude, what are you eating, man? Like a Milky Way mini muncher or something like that? It's gross, dude. Stand back. Jeez. You're going to get fired for that. You know that. I wish. 
you wish. Mm. Dude, this job is awesome, man. Dude, no, it's not, man. You paid nine fifty an hour. It's bogus. It's crap mortgage company doing this crap work. Marty, from this job alone, I got like four hundred dollars cash at my house. What do you think about that, dude? In this stack alone, two thousand. That's the real deal. I'm tempted to say, Adam, that if you don't know a Marty Jakatansky at your place of work, you might just be Marty Jakatansky. It seems that every job, or at least summer jobs or internships or temp assignments, these places where people are there because they have to be, not because they want to be, has someone who fits the Marty Jakatansky mold, played by Joshua Burge in Buzzard. He shrugs off his work, steals office supplies, spends his days on petty scams, like calling the complaint line for his favorite frozen pizza and talking his way into free coupons. Buzzard, though, written and directed by Joel Petrikas, takes things even further. Marty isn't just an unapologetic antisocial parasite. Especially after he tries to pull a check-cashing con that doesn't quite work, there are hints that real anger and potential violence may explode at any moment. We especially sense this in his treatment of his supposed friend from work, Derek, played by Petrikas, and in his decision to customize his video game power glove with Freddy Krueger-style knives. Petrikas and Burge do an impressive job of establishing a consistent yet unsettling tone in Buzzard, and the mixture of humor and danger, not to mention a surrealistic turn at the end, made me wonder, how seriously are we supposed to take Marty as a real-world character, as a representative of the disaffected and underemployed? Is he just a darkly comic goof or some sort of warning? And more importantly, if this conversation gets heated and comes to blows, do you want the toy lightsaber? Or the power glove with blades? <laughs> I'm definitely going to take the power glove with yeah? blades. They yeah. were pretty dull. Well, they were, but there's something that can be done about that as we do learn as we watch this film unfold. I don't know about a warning, Josh, but I do think that we should take him seriously. And that's because any acutely observed character portrait offers something to say and should be taken just as seriously, if not more seriously, than any movie that maybe more directly purports to offer a warning or some kind of message. What was Peter Labuza's line last week we referenced at the end of the show when we were teasing this review? I know you're going to hate that I'm going to open this can of worms, but he said this is really the movie your beloved pain and gain wanted to be. Okay, an easy shot, but certainly if you're going to put that Michael Bay, for me, abomination, forward as some kind of paragon of social commentary, which you do, I hope you found some of the same substance in this film Buzzard, because I think to Petragas's credit, the fact that he's not as preachy or preachy at all in terms of incorporating overt symbolism and references to the American dream like Bay, that doesn't mean he's not wrestling with some of the same concerns. I think, though, an even better recent comparison is a movie we both enjoyed from last year, and that's Nightcrawler. Most of us who really got behind that film saw through all the media stuff that hung up a lot of people and recognized it as more of a socioeconomic and generational critique. The way Lou Bloom, played by Hall, litters his conversations with corporate speak and goes after everything he wants with reckless abandon, money, cars, respect, and he gets what he wants no matter what the moral or the ethical or the human costs are. And it occurs to me, who's Lou Bloom if not just a more motivated, more cunning, more ruthless Marty Jakotansky. They're both just barely surviving. All those scams that they're working, they're still just barely getting by in this world. And 
Both movies, thankfully, only hint at their backgrounds, but there's this strong sense that they've both been dealt pretty bad hands, and they realize that the only way they can get by, that they can continue to survive, is to try to beat the house somehow. And I was thinking about this today, Josh, and I don't think you can answer it. I don't think you can try to objectively answer it because you have seen both films and you know what each character is capable of and how they end up. But I was wondering, if you took, let's say, 100 people off the street who hadn't seen Nightcrawler, or seen Buzzer, didn't know anything about the movies. You had them watch the first 20 or 30 minutes of the film, get a sense of each character. Which character do you think they would find to be, however you want to put it, more likable, that they'd root for more, they'd find more sympathetic, have more respect for? Lou Bloom or Marty Jakotansky? That is a terrifying choice to have to make because you wouldn't want to be stuck in a room with either of these guys. No. And But I do think Bloom is the comparison to make. I had actually forgotten about that pain and gain comment when I was watching Buzzard. And to be honest with you, it never occurred Probably to me. Probably not. I mean, I, they're different. They're just films. so they're wildly different. But there is that underlying socioeconomic sort of foundation that they're built upon. Mm-hmm. So I guess I could see that. You don't have an but, answer, though? But Bloom... No, I think it would be Bloom because because here's even though we talked about and this was one of the great things about that Jill and Hal performance that when even when he was charming you could tell mm-hmm. that there he was a little off yeah he was either a little too insistent or a little delayed in his smiles mm-hmm. it, you always knew he was putting it on even if somehow he managed to develop a little bit of charm. Marty Jakotansky is incapable of being charming and more interesting. And this is what I really like about Burge's performance. He's not interested in it. No. He knows that he's right in these cons and he shoves it, if you can call them cons, they're really scams. He shoves it in the people's faces as if they are committing some sort of crime by allowing themselves to be scammed. Sure. It's their fault. They deserve to be had. They deserve to be had. And maybe the the best scene that is, exemplifies that is right at the beginning when he goes into a bank, another branch of the same bank he's working for, love that touch, and closes a checking account and then immediately asks to open one just to get the $50 enticement fee. And the teller just says, you know, basically, come on, man, you're wasting my time. And he, Marty gets pissed because it's not his fault that there's this loophole. You know you work for us? I'm a temp. It doesn't look good at all. It doesn't matter. Then what? There's also a minimum deposit required to be eligible for the promotion. Well, I happen to have $255.38 right here. Can I ask you once again what was wrong with your original checking account? It's irrelevant. So you're just trying to cheat the system? Absolutely. For $50? Absolutely. I love how Petrakis, in a number of instances in this film, will just hold on Marty. A long, extended take. This is a really difficult performance to pull off because there are not a lot of cuts Mm -hmm. in these scenes. And this is one of them. We don't see the teller's face at all. It's just on Marty as he goes through this scam and he's not going to back down. He doesn't care if the guy thinks he's a jerk, if he thinks he's a moron. He's not worried about being charming. So so if I had to make that, you know, who would people find more likable? I think definitely Lou Bloom. Uh, and and I also what I also like about that scene, which happens in a number of places, is because we don't see that teller's face, mm-hmm. we have marked Marty as a man apart. The camera has done that. He is 
literally, physically antisocial. He wants nothing to do uh, with the engines and the people of everyday society. He's going to, uh, in my review, I talked about, I wish this wasn't named buzzard because it's such a great visual metaphor for how this guy lives. For sure. And uh, right down to the fact that his scams are so puny that it is like carrion, you know, it's like dead meat that he's, yeah. terrible frozen pizzas are what he's getting for free. Um, but that's who this guy is. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you had to choose, you'd probably run from him more quickly. <laughs> well, that's a great answer. I didn't really think about the charm aspect, and I do want to get a little more into that opening scene. But back to the question for me, I as well think the answer for most people would be Lou Bloom. And maybe it is the charm, but it is also because what you just said about Marty, that his sights are so puny in the grand scheme of things. Lou is ambitious. And Marty doesn't seem to be at all. He is constantly busy in that way. He, he isn't hard. really a slacker. He does seem to work hard, but his ambitions are set very low. He is content gaming these banks for $50 a pop on new checking accounts. But if you do compare the two characters, Marty starts harmless and only becomes more dangerous the more desperate he gets. Whereas Lou, right from that opening scene we spent a lot of time on, he's dangerous from the outset. Sure. And he only becomes more dangerous as he becomes more successful. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people... And I found myself really weighing this as I was thinking about both characters. I had more sympathy for Lou almost because he's driven. And let's face it, America loves someone who's driven to succeed. And that may not be the right way to approach it, but I think that element is there or we'd have to admit to that element being there in all of us. So I do think there's a lot to chew on with this film and observe. And you mentioned it as well. There's a lot to laugh at in this movie. Oh, absolutely. And keeping that balance is what impressed me most about the so many times I'll talk about a film's tone if Mm -hmm. if there's something that's just not feeling right to me that that's the word I come to and uh, we'll get to it later in the show possibly if I get to say a few words about Chappie the Neil Blomkamp film where the tone is just a disaster and here it's complete control it's control in the performance by Burge and control in just how scenes are going to play the one that's a good example of that is when Derek the friend they're in the party zone, which mm-hmm. turns out to be Derek's father's basement. <laughs> His at basement, first, yeah. You, you know, at first I, I held out a little bit of hope for Derek. That it would I actually thought, be awesome. I, you know what I thought? Actually, I was like, wow, this guy's got a house? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of surprised me. And then when we see it and it turns out that it's his father's He's basement, just got the I was disco like, ball, basically. that makes more sense. Yeah. And so, so this is where Marty ends up. And this also hints at there's a level of paranoia here. And I want to talk about this level as character as we get more into the fact of is he a symbol of some sort of group or is this a personal character study but Mm -hmm. anyways marty has paranoia that this check cashing scam is catching up with him he can't be in his apartment so he crashes in the party zone Uh, and they just do things that you know 13 year old boys generally do including this fight with the lightsaber and this glove that marty has and the balancing of that scene where you're laughing at them because they're being ridiculous But also you sense nothing really has happened yet with Marty except maybe some vocal outbursts, including at that bank teller. He gets very loud at the end of the scene Mm -hmm. Um, and some odd behavior, you know, wearing masks out in public. You're very aware that this could turn and go really badly at any moment, obviously because the weapon is there. But there's just something else in the overall tone of how they handle it that keeps you laughing yet really at unease. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, Buzzard. It's playing at the Music Box here in Chicago this weekend. And you're exactly right, Josh. That brings me back to that opening scene. You talked about how that opening shot, I think it's kind of a medium close-up that just stays focused on 
Joshua Burge as Marty as he's talking to this bank teller. Occasionally, the bank teller's head kind of flits into the screen now and again into the frame. But in addition to establishing him as a man apart, as you put it, it immediately shows us his perspective, his point of view on the world without actually showing us what he's looking at, because we're only seeing him, but it exhibits for us that it's a him against the world mentality and that mm. this guy is just another nameless, faceless corporate drone. He's to got Marty. contempt for him. He does have some contempt for him. But that is where the performance really comes in here. And you've said a lot of this already. But in terms of how comfortable I think Burge is as an actor and how comfortable Jack Atansky is in his own skin, despite the fact that he is so disenfranchised and disconnected from the world, there is something he seems to be aware of. And he's just going to continue using that knowledge against the world. Because as he's talking to the bank teller, there's that little bit of derision in his voice. There's some condescension as the bank manager half-heartedly at times tries to resist him. But for the most part, until the end, as you mentioned, where he gets a little bit aggravated, he, he keeps his cool. He doesn't really betray any fear. He doesn't betray any discomfort that you might expect someone in the situation maybe thinking, oh, am I going to get busted or where is this going to lead? There's none of that fear on his part. He just knows the system. He knows how to game it. And he's not going to be denied in this case. And so that balance in Burge's performance is there throughout the movie. And it's there in the humor, too, where none of these characters are ever playing the jokes. They're never trying to be comical. The humor is born from the character and the characters. And I feel like we're just that dialed into this main character because Burge is so dialed into this performance. And that opening scene as well encapsulates for me the whole tone of the movie because it's a combination of the mundane with this hint of menace that on a dime turns and becomes laugh out loud funny when we actually find out when it's revealed what he's there for all along. And so that juggling act that Petrikas manages here, you're right, it's so controlled. You know from the opening frame, the opening two minutes of this film, that there is a director in control. And I always enjoy watching those visions when you know that you Mm -hmm. are in control, that you know that the filmmaker is in control from the outset. And what can you do when you're that dialed in as a director and as an actor? You can get away with a scene. I didn't count it, but I should have of Marty just sitting in a hotel bed. He's essentially on the run at this point. Mm -hmm eating a plate of room service spaghetti that he's ordered. And you wonder if we're going to see him eat the whole plate. And we pretty much do. We pretty much do. It had to be two minutes at least, which maybe doesn't sound long. But when you're just watching, again, no cuts, Mm -hmm. a a guy spoon the spaghetti into his mouth, giant meatballs. It's just falling out of his mouth all over the white hotel robe that he's wearing. That can sustain itself. It's beyond just being a gag Mm -hmm. because Burge is also staying in character. Mm -hmm. He's watching TV. TV and you'll see moments where he reacts to something, not even thinking about the fact that he's eating like this. And, right. and that's, you know, it's it's funny and it's sad and it makes you a little worried about, like, is this guy losing any sense of even himself at this point or is this just how he eats? It is a recurring motif, we should say, of eating really unhealthy food in disgusting ways. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's pretty much a constant throughout the film. And there is this sense of dread. You've touched on this as well, that runs throughout the whole movie so that by the time it leads to a sort of conclusion, I felt that that inevitability, if you will, for me, that sort of creeping sense of the inevitable was really a strength of this film, actually, knowing that it was sort of going to a certain place. It was just a matter of how it got there and how exactly it then all played out. You don't know what it's building to, but you know it's going to be interesting when it happens. And I do think that that sense of dread is what heightens the humor as well, because it makes the jokes that are there ultimately 
that much more surprising and unsettling, that contrasting of tones. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say that the inevitability is a good word for it because you do get to a point where you feel, well, this has to go somewhere and we pretty much know where it's going to go because of the hints. Uh, but what does work for it is you question your laughter then at that point when right. things start to start to go wrong and you question, OK, um, what have I been laughing at and why have I been laughing and am I laughing now? If mm -hmm. so, why? Why not? So that gives an interesting element to it as well. And I did think, you know, there is a scene where things do go wrong at a payday loan bank mm -hmm. and it's by no means on the nose but I think that is the one point in the movie where the economic element of this comes to the fore Marty challenges the owner of that payday loan bank essentially saying hey you're running a scam too mm -hmm. we're we're all just doing our own thing and and it's kind of like okay you know I, I see what's been you bubbling know, I didn't along. sense the director really imposing anything there though so much as I saw that is just his pure desperation and anger in that moment that that's really him lashing out with the most intelligent thing he can come up with yeah yeah moment. I guess I guess it is the only instance in the film where you see him having any sort of manifesto yeah maybe if that makes sense and I liked this thinking of this guy as someone just without a manifesto, even though he may represent one, mm -hmm. if that if that makes any yeah. sense. So but it also when things get unhinged, it also made me think th this is a question I want to circle back to. He is certainly this representative of, again, the underemployed, the disenfranchised to a degree. But is this also a very acute and it could be both could very well be both character study of someone who's suffering from a real mental illness. And I say that, especially keeping in mind the final shot, which we shouldn't discuss, but as I mentioned, it, it gets a little surreal. There's an earlier shot we can discuss, which I think has the same tone. It's when he's riding a bus, I believe. And all of a sudden we see him, he has a collection of horror movie right, Halloween which masks. he dons from time to time out in public. I think that's the first time we see him wearing it in public on the bus, mm -hmm. but it's almost like a quick cut of the same matching image of him wearing right. the mask, and then it cuts and he's not. That's right. And, and I thought at first, okay, is, is he in his mind? Is that how he thinks he looks? Is that how he wants to look? Or did he really put it on? Later on, there's a shot of him at a movie theater that's right yeah. where he's wearing it and so then i felt like okay he does wear this out but but it's just this first hint of something that blossoms a little more at the ending where you're wondering have we maybe transitioned more inside marty's head yeah. and and that you know like i said it can be both i like that that it mm -hmm. might be operating on both levels as I a do character too. study and a wider societal yeah. statement no i don't think there's any doubt that at some point, we recognize him as a real fractured soul, that there's a real sense of a fracture in his identity. And I would love to get into the closing shots of this because I think there's a real haunting, provocative coda to this movie. Yeah. But we would be spoiling things a little bit. I also would love to get into more of a discussion with you about that final showdown where things really become unhinged in terms of how you read it. We can't get into it here, but maybe in our bonus content. Sure. If you have the Film Spotting app or you go to filmspotting.net and click on apps, we can get into some of that spoiler talk. I would love to get into that here. Can we also get into how they pulled off the bugle shot? Where the bugle he, shot. Because I couldn't Because they don't show you. They no, don't show you, but no. eventually I did put it together. That okay, it's good. the treadmill. It's the treadmill. So his he's, head is down on the ground by the treadmill. And, he's, and the bugles are coming off. The bugles it. are coming off that, the treadmill see? into his mouth. 
that is something a 13-year-old boy would come up with. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, <laughs> there are some crazy moments in this film, and there are some really funny moments like the bugle scene in this film. I think most people will take that away from Buzzard. It is out now in limited release, and it has a couple of midnight showings at the Music Box here in Chicago this weekend. Depending on when you're hearing the show, you might be able to still catch the director, Joel Petrikas, in conversation with Drew Hunt from the Chicago Reader. Drew, a really good guy, a listener of Film Spot. I hope people will go out and support these Q&As. We'll link to more details in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. And if you can't catch up with it at the Music Box, it is available via VOD on most platforms. So if you see it and you agree or disagree with our takes, we'd love to hear from you. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting Madness begins when we come back. Our deathmatch tournament, complete with bracket, to determine the ultimate film spotting actor. I'm already regretting my Joaquin Phoenix vote. Stay with us. TV is my friend, and it has been with me every day from an early age. TV is my friend, and it has been always there for me in time of need. Folks, just jumping in with a quick reminder that this episode of Film Spotting is supported by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project. Josh, I threw out the bat signal a while back last month when Shutterstock was featured on the show for listeners who have used Shutterstock, whether photos or videos and whatever their project is, wanted to mention that project, maybe link to it over in the show notes at Filmspotting.net. Haven't had any takers yet, even though I know the Shutterstock is so heavily used by a lot of industry professionals, creative professionals, and I'm sure there are some film spotting listeners out there. So I'm throwing it out there again. We'd love to feature your work. If you use Shutterstock, send us that email, feedback at filmspotting.net. In the meantime, maybe you're working on a piece, I don't know, about buzzards. <laughs> you know? Probably. There's a high chance that someone's working on a piece chance. involving buzzards. I mean, Joel Petrikas can't have the market cornered <laughs> no. on buzzard projects. So if you go to Shutterstock.com, you go to footage, you type in the word buzzards, you will get 433 footage clips, mostly birds, okay. as you would expect. But then if you type in fringe, you get 480 clips. Not that many that I'd say directly relate to our top five this week characters on the fringe, but there was, notably, sad woman in the hood standing by chain link fence. <laughs> And if that doesn't work for you, <laughs> sad woman behind chain link fence, outdoors, slow motion. Well, I could use both of those, actually. Now, did any of those birds' images help you determine what is a buzzard? I was trying to figure yeah. this out. Is it a vulture? Yeah, it's or more is like it a vulture. Like a condor vulture? Vulture. Okay. That's what it looked like. All right, good yeah. to know. 
thanks to Shutterstock.com. Again, Shutterstock will help you, whatever your project is for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project, you can choose from over 2 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. Many contributors to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers, and they add over 25,000 video clips each week. Every time you visit, you'll find something new, and the pricing is really flexible. You can buy video packs for the best deal or just get individual clips. Maybe you just need that sad woman by chain link fence in slow motion. That just might be the final piece of the puzzle for you, or maybe you need a bunch of buzzards. You never know. Shutterstock can help you find the appropriate deal for you. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. Just start an account and begin browsing Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like. Save the video selections you find to your clip box. Once you do decide to purchase, use offer code FILM315 and new accounts will receive 20% off only footage clips. That's Shutterstock.com and for 20% off any video clips with a new account, use offer code FILM315. We thank Shutterstock for their support. What can I bring for you on this glorious afternoon? Well, Hector, here's the game plan. You're going to bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them, straight up. And then precisely seven and one half minutes after that, you're going to bring us two more. Then two more after that, every five minutes until one of us passes the f*** out. <laughs> Excellent strategy, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm good with water for now, though. Thank you. It's his first day on Wall Street. Give him time. McConaughey, DiCaprio. They could survive a multiple martini lunch and apparently lots of cocaine and hookers, but can they survive film spotting madness? This is film spotting with Adam and Josh. 32 actors, only one Josh survives to act another day. We'll get to more on film spotting madness in just a bit. We are way too giddy about this whole <laughs> endeavor. It's going to be fun. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. We do have to get to corrections, Josh. Last week, in honor of our 10th anniversary show, we decided to commemorate the show by sounding very dumb. Making apparently. a lot of mistakes. Well, That's right. Two. Let's <laughs> two not mistakes. You're right. Okay. We shared our top five blind spots. So basically the movies that we're really embarrassed, we've mm-hmm. never seen. We came up with an action plan after much discussion to see these movies and discuss them on the show over the course of the next year or so. And among yours was Jules and Jim. Now, I didn't realize that Jean-Luc Godard also made a film called Jules and Jim. You have, of course, seen the Truffaut film, right? Well, that's that's two Jules and Jims then that I have not seen. Hey, I was just happy that I pronounced Godard's name right. There you go. I wasn't worried about whether it's or not he little was involved with the film at all. Yeah. Well, of course, I can make fun of you because I also got some coming back at me. David Cronenberg's Videodrome was in my top ten. It did make our final top five, so we are going to discuss that film at some point. And I did misspeak when I said it was his debut. And the funny part is here, I was actually thinking of, in that moment when I was thinking of debut for Cronenberg, I was thinking of Scanners. But it turns out I was wrong about that, too, because Scanners wasn't his first feature. If you look at IMDb, after several shorts and some TV movies, depending on how you categorize all these films, it looks like Videodrome may have actually been his sixth feature. So he made They Came From Within. Yeah, They Came From Within in 1975, Rabid, Fast Company, The Brood, then Scanners, then Videodrome. I don't know if I'm right about this or not. I'm probably just going to say something else stupid, but... I feel like Scanners is really what a lot of people consider the first Cronenberg, though. Those other sort of exercises in 
the horror genre. I don't know, but I'm probably wrong. Don't probably look at wrong. me. I, I didn't even know Cronenberg directed Scanners. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes Sorry. me feel a little bit better. So there you go, getting our French auteurs mixed up there momentarily and miscounting the number of movies that David Cronenberg has made. We regret the errors as always. Our Satyajit Ray Marathon. So last week on the show, we promised that earlier this week you'd get the latest installment, our fourth podcast, our fifth review in the marathon. And due to some conflicts, we just didn't get there. Every marathon over the years, there's always been one film we had to push back. Flexible schedule. Yeah, unfortunately, we apologize for that as well. But the big city has been delayed. We will get to that next week on the show. And I know that if you had it your way, we wouldn't ever finish this Ray Marathon. So this just extends it. I'm loving it. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> I'm always trying to look at the positive here, but it is 1963's The Big City that's up next. So you've got an extra week to catch up and see that movie if you're not already playing along. And then we'll wrap up the marathon the following week. So the goal will be to have back-to-back Ray reviews with The Lonely Wife and we'll get to our Ray Marathon Awards. I don't know if you've got any catchy names for the awards in place yet, Josh, or in mind, but we've talked a lot about trains. We have. The trains, the whistles, the choo-choos. The the choo-choos, the opus. We could just go obvious with the opus. I'm sure a listener can come up with something better. Yeah, please do take to Twitter with your ideas. You can find us at Filmspotting or go to Facebook, facebook.com slash Filmspotting, and tell us what you think we should call the Satchajit Ray Marathon Awards. And if you do want to hear the last two reviews and those awards, or just get all the information about the marathon, go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons. We also wanted to give a heads up to the Chicago Film Critics Festival. This is going to be in May. And last year, Adam, you and I were able to make it for the screening of They Came Together. David Wayne was there. Fantastic crowd. They've got a good lineup this year, it looks like, as well, which they just announced. The dates are May 1 through 7, once again at the Music Box Theater, and there will be new films from Chicago's Joe Swanberg, from Computer Chess director Andrew Bajalski, and also Don Hertzfeld's Sundance-winning animated short, World of Tomorrow. Another Sundance title that got a lot of good buzz was Spectacular Now director James Ponsolt's The End of the Tour. That has Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. Did not catch that when I was there at Sundance, but did hear a lot of good things. That was sort of one of those that fell in that category mm-hmm. of big enough names. I knew it would come our way eventually, so I didn't see it there. And here it is as part of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Yeah, and because of Ponsold, I wanted to see it just because I'm curious, like a lot of people, even though I haven't read any of his stuff, I should maybe feel shame about not being more familiar with David Foster Wallace. I wanted to see what Jason Siegel did with the performance. Of course, I'm just intrigued by mercurial or enigmatic writers like that. But then finding out that it was Ponsolt who gave us the spectacular now, I am even more excited to see that movie. And I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to see it here in May at the festival. So the fest is until May, but passes are on sale now if you want to go ahead and get those. We'll link to more info in the show notes for that. We have our own passes that we're going to be giving away here also for a screening at the Music Box. This is for Noah Baumbach's latest, While We're Young. It stars Ben Stiller, Naomi Watts, Adam Driver, and Amanda Seyfried. One of those four is in the film Spotted Madness bracket, That's just for right. your information. The screening itself is going to be this coming Wednesday. That's March 18. The winners will be contacted on Monday the 16th. So depending on when you're listening, you might still have a chance to sneak in and try to win some passes. Baumbach is also going to be there for a Q&A afterwards. Added incentive. It sounds like a really good film, good cast. Latest from Baumbach and the fact that he's going to be there for a Q&A should hopefully mean that we get a lot of people entering that contest. You can do that at filmspotting.net. 
If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. We're going to have to get somebody working on a new theme for Larson Rebukes. Oh, boy. Or Larson Recommends could still work, I suppose. It's just Larson Recommends you find a better use for your time. Yeah, that sounds a little kinder and gentler <laughs> Maybe than Maybe a rebukes. little cumbersome to say there in a song. But we were planning to review Neil Blomkamp's latest Chappie this week. We teased it last week on the show. But then we got a sniff of the horrible reviews. Our pal, friend of the show, regular contributor Michael Phillips, in fact, gave it in the Chicago Tribune. Zero stars. Which initially made me want to really see me it. Me too. Like, I think I texted you and I thought, well, now we have to review <laughs> gotta it. gotta go. Sure, we were already And hopefully going... Michael on to talk about it. That would have <laughs> been good. Right. We were already thinking about going in a different direction. And that is what we decided to do. And we're really happy that we talked about Buzzard instead. Still, Josh, you saw Chappie and you reviewed it on your site. So give us a little taste of just how bad Chappie is, unfortunately. <laughs> and did you even remotely consider giving it zero stars? No, it's not. It's not a zero star film. I am fascinated to find out why Michael thinks it's so. I have a few ideas. I could, you know, it features this main character, which is essentially a RoboCop type, except he's pure robot, um, who is given an artificial intelligence program. So he becomes sentient. And this character uh, could go down. I found him grading, but I could see how someone would find him hauntingly grading in a manner that would make you run screaming from the theater. It's just that sort of it's a comic. We were talking about tone in Buzzard, and this movie goes from really forcibly comic awkwardness where this robot is kidnapped essentially by some gangsters, I guess they call themselves, and they teach him how to walk and talk like a gangster for high comedy this is and then there'll be like another old scene. school edward g robinson no, no or... that might have been funny okay might, this is like this couple it's it's a gangster drug running couple who kidnaps this robot and they're actually played by ninja and yolandi visser from the south african rap group die antward i'm sure i'm pronouncing that incorrectly uh, but they're big i mean so so they have the way i describe them in my review is imagine if Lady Gaga and Iggy Pop, they somewhat look like them, gave each other haircuts while blindfolded. That's wow. the look they have. Um, and they act even bigger than this. So they're shouting. They're like, like making large movements. Charlotte Copley and, in Elysium well, big? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. So Blomkamp likes his villains big, right? We know this already. Chappie, if you want to be in the gang, you have to be cool like daddy. Look at daddy wolf. Look how cool he is. You need to keep a gangster. You need to keep a gangster. Yeah. Be cool. Don't laugh. I'm being cool. cool. Even when you put a gun, you have to be cool like this. Boom. And you try. No, I can't shoot people. What? I can't shoot them. They didn't do anything to me. How are you going to do the host with us if you don't shoot people? The other problem is Copley provides the movements for this robot character. For Chappie. I guess I can call him Chappie. The name is also kind of a problem. And these are the exact opposite of what we've praised from the likes of Toby Kebbell and Andy Serkis in the Planet of the Apes films, where they're giving motion capture performances that are nuanced and emotional. This is, he's essentially doing charades. So at the beginning, when Chappie is just learning, like he's sort of a baby, essentially, uh, he kind of like prances about oddly. And then as he grows up, he does these 
gangster movements and everything is wildly exaggerated that Copley does. It's not a motion capture performance of the sort that we've been praising lately. It shows you how they can also be done very poorly. So all of this, why is this not a zero star film for me? I was still on the Blomkamp bandwagon after Elysium. You were not. Um, but I do recognize that Elysium and even District 9, I had some issues with. They were always promising. And I'm just off the bandwagon now because this is another example of really smart ideas. Uh, the movie is playing with artificial intelligence. It somehow winds its way toward the end, toward talking about can consciousness be um, you know, saved on a flash drive and transferred to another um, artificial body. And so these are all provocative ideas. And the movie just drops them or fails to follow through on them. And things just erupt in more gunfire. and. Blumkamp's movies have weapons issues where they seem to understand that there are some very provocative ethical questions around weaponry. And in their best moments, they're playing with that. Um, and then they all end in these orgiastic explosions of gunfire. And the same thing happens here with Chappie. And I'm no longer willing to give the movies the benefit of the doubt. I think instead of being any form of satire, there's no Robocop Verhoeven type satire that I could detect here. Um, very little of it. Hugh Jackman has a supporting part as a villainous engineer, and I think maybe you'll find some there. But overall, I'm finding that these movies are striking me as more and more hypocritical than anything mm. else, and Chappie probably the most so. Well, I do remember, and I don't relish this at all, genuinely, but I remember how much hate mail we got when Maddie and I reviewed District 9, and we're just okay with it. Yeah. We liked it. We especially loved the premise. We loved the satire. We thought it was so inventive. And ultimately abandon a lot of it because it was so infatuated with the weaponry and the action and the explosions. And it did devolve into chaos. And this is the part I don't relish. After seeing Elysium and hearing what you've had to say and everyone else has to say about Chappie, it sort of feels like, well, that's what his films maybe are. We that's what seems completely to be crazy no. about seeing that movie that way. And and you you guys were dead on. I had very similar reservations about District 9. It was one of those I saw later in the year and thought, this sounds like it's right up my alley, the topic, the style of filmmaking. People are praising it. Um, I can't wait to see this. And came away feeling quite similarly. It's a great idea didn't quite follow through. How, how many movies can you say that of before you wonder, well, maybe that's all there is here? We do have an actual recommendation here, though it's one that I've already recommended previously on the show. If we haven't promoted the music box here enough, we have yet another music box They've promo. been doing some great programming. They definitely have. And the movie in question, as we've already highlighted, Buzzard in our first segment, that's a surefire golden brick contender, wouldn't you say, Josh, at oh, this yeah. point? Yeah. Meets all our criteria. Well, another one previously mentioned on the show was The Duke of Burgundy. It's been out on VOD, but if you want to see it on the big screen, it is playing at the Music Box starting this weekend. If you're not in the Chicago area, I think it's still on VOD. And I did share a few thoughts on this movie back on episode 524. But in a nutshell, if you like your BDSM movies more challenging and more artful than Fifty Shades of Grey, this is for you. So, Josh, it might which, be for you. Which that's is, what you wanted. Boy, that's saying something from a big fan of Fifty Shades of Grey like yourself. <laughs> big fan. Huge fan of the, Fifty Shades of Grey. From the fan of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> How dare you? You saw the box office for that film, whether deserved or not. <laughs> All right. So, the wait is over. Finally, we're going to stop teasing this, and we're going to get down to the action. I cannot wait 
to start tabulating the results of Film Spotting Madness. This is the brainchild of listener Michael Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire, longtime listener of the show who came up with one of the best ideas in the history of the show. And basically, you know March Madness, at least if you're listening here in the States. The NCAA tournament starts with 64 teams, whittle it down to the Sweet 16, Elite 8, Final 4, and then we do get that final matchup and a national champion is crowned. Here we've got 32 that we are going to whittle down to one. And I think we read part of this, if not this part, last week on the show. But I think, Josh, it's worth reading again how Michael conceived this in order to set up what Film Spotting Madness is really all about. I've been thinking that with all these recent deathmatch polls, who is actually the most film spotting actor we have? How can we throw all the actors into a cage and see who emerges as the lone film spotting champion? This is seriously hard business. We're going to decide that one actor or actress who can keep making films and the rest never can again. That's really what it's all about. The deathmatches we do on the show, whether we're pitting certain directors against each other or actors... It's about choosing which one you want to see more from and which one you're basically saying they never get to work again. There are high stakes. That's why they're called death matches. And we had some internal debate about whether this whole project should reflect the work of the first 10 years of the show or if it should, in fact, reflect the spirit of those death matches, one actor surviving to act another day. And we did settle on the latter, though the show's history certainly factors in because the final 32 performers we picked, they've all been praised over the years on the show. They are all film spotting favorites. So the key point is we get into some of our choices and we highlight some of the matchups is that we didn't want it to be about picking the actor or actress who did the most work or the best work over the past 10 years, but whose work you're most excited to see in years to come. So obviously their past is going to play into that. For it's, sure. It's a hint that's of how you future, but that. when you're picking, that's what uh, this important distinction to make because it will alter how you vote. When you're picking, think about going forward. That's right. And also keep in mind, as we're talking about who is the most film-spotting-y actor we have, you're not trying to get inside my head how dare you? And and really, <laughs> you don't want you to. don't want inside my head or Josh's head. You are voting for yourself, of course. You're picking that actor or actress that you want to survive to act another day. And we have here a little surreptitiously behind the scenes. We promoted it on Twitter. We promoted it on Facebook. It's been on the main page of our website. But we started this a little bit early, just like the basketball tournament works. We had a play-in game for that final seed, and we narrowed it down to a character-actor death match between the veteran. Brendan Gleeson, of course, started with Colin Farrell in In Bruges. He was the star of last year's Calvary. Great performances in both. Versus John Hawks, who you know from Winter's Bone, where he got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Martha Marcy May Marlene, recently in Life of Crime, talked about him with the director of that movie and writer Dan Schechter on the show last year. Two just heavyweight character actors and of course occasionally do play some leads as well especially gleason as we mentioned with calvary we threw that out there on the website got a lot of votes how did it come out josh of these two the one who is no longer allowed to act i'm afraid is john hawks he only received 34 percent of the vote gleason won it with 66 is that what you would have guessed yeah, I think so. Yeah. I would have thought about two-thirds of the vote. I, I just think John Hawks is maybe a little bit underappreciated, but I don't think it's really about him. I think it's about the fact that Gleason's just that good. And he's in some movies like In Bruges, The Guard, another one from Jean-Michael McDonough, and Calvary that are film-spotting favorites. So it makes some sense. And that, you know, that gets about, how are you going to look at this? Is it going to be concentrating on what they could do in the future? Or is it going to be concentrating on... What Hawks, even as you're describing that, mm -hmm. you're going back and forth. And I did end up with Gleason, and I think it was 
it was more on what I want to see him do ahead, actually. Yeah. I don't know if it's no, me sometimes too. That's that, what we sometimes said. That if really they're is. on a roll or something like that yeah. will will lend itself. So so I voted for Gleason. I'm glad to see him. Although really does it matter because no, this is they've what we're getting earned to here. the right to go up against the number one seed, Michael Fassbender. <laughs> the number one overall seed, so. the Duke in this scenario, <laughs> depending on how much you follow college basketball. In this case, this year, the Kentucky of our tournament is, of course, Michael Fassbender. And so really, Gleason or Hawks, they were running into a buzzsaw. If you didn't get a chance to vote, yeah, don't worry. It doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> That's true. So we're not going to go through the entire bracket, matchup by matchup. We will spare you that. There's a link to it in the top story over at filmspotting.net. You can look for a link in the notes to this show. And of course, we will be all over Twitter. By the time you hear this, you will probably already have seen us mention this on social media and on our website. But we did want to have some fun with this. Talk briefly about the various players who made the cut, the various players who didn't make the cut. And going back to Michael's original list, because he threw out the first three. 32. We kept 75% of that original list. The 25% who got cut, this is how good our final 32 is when these eight names are getting cut. Here's who got cut. Amy Adams, Penelope Cruz, Mark Ruffalo, Viola Davis, J.K. Simmons. Oh, that, that Oscar glow didn't last long. Benedict the Batch Cumberbatch got cut. Kate Winslet, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. They're all out. They're out. Weren't even eligible. No, I guess in a way that means that they get to continue making movies. So it's a good thing for them. Does it? I think we're wiping out the careers of everyone who's not in this bracket. Just this 32 and whoever makes it to the end. Okay. Well, also conspicuously absent, and I'll admit to this, I don't know if Michael just overlooked him or if he had any reasoning or how we did this. Sam came up with a good excuse. Our co-producer, Sam Van Hogren, did come up with a good out here, but I don't know if it's good enough. Somehow we overlooked... Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, the out is he doesn't make a lot of movies. He acts so infrequently that, you know, we just put him in his own stratosphere. It shouldn't. If we're we're focusing on the future, plus, if he's the only actor left who's allowed to act, he'll be in everything. And that would be great. So... Daniel Day-Lewis should probably be the number one seed, and he's not even in the tournament, which means the whole thing is flawed. (laughs) Already. We should shut it down. We should (laughs) shut it down. Of course... The other name that you won't see on the list for obvious reasons based on how we've set it up is the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think maybe the actor of the film spotting era, if you're going to go back these last 10 years. And as far as I'm concerned, they're playing for the Hoffman. They're they're playing for that trophy is what the winner of this is ultimately going to get. Sure. And if we were doing it the other way around based on what they have done Mm -hmm. in that time. That's exactly right. Also not on the list. Some other names conspicuously absent. Wow. Christian Bale. Ed Norton. Mm. Paul Giamatti, Don Cheadle, Paul Rudd, Matt Damon, Jesse Eisenberg, your beloved Jesse Eisenberg, and Jason Schwartzman. This is a subjective and really difficult list to put together. So <laughs> no science. We involved. tried our best. We tried our best. <laughs> we considered the history of the show, the praise these actors have gotten on the show. They do have to feel like film spotting favorites. Like maybe if you're listening, some of these names, some of them are stars, but some of them maybe you wouldn't have become familiar with or been as invested in their work if it wasn't for our show and the fact that we were on to them early and have praised them. So let's actually go ahead and list the contenders here because we've broken it up into groups. So we're not identifying every single matchup, all 16 games in this first match, but the contenders here are kind of the big names, the, the big stars, the heavyweights. They are. Fastbender, we mentioned also DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Tom Hardy, Joaquin Phoenix, Scarlett Johansson, Matthew McConaughey, and Kate Blanchett. Okay, the challengers, the ones who just might surprise us and overtake one of these contenders, Jake Gyllenhaal, 
Ryan Gosling, Marion Cotillard, Naomi Watts, Michelle Williams, Juliette Binoche, Javier Bardem, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Up-and-comers group includes Jessica Chastain, Anna Kendrick, Miles Teller, Mia Vasikovska, Rooney Mara, Oscar Isaac, Carrie Mulligan, Emma Stone, and Channing Tatum. There he is. I'm happy he's in there. The character actors, our final group here, you heard Brendan Gleeson, Woody Harrelson, Michael Shannon, of course, Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, and finally, Sam Rockwell. So those are the 32 who made the final cut. Now, we went through these. We've already voted. Well, sort of, as I'll get to in a second. We voted in these 16 first-round matchups. And what did you find, Josh? Which matchups did you find to be the toughest for you? Which ones were the hardest? The one I hesitated over for the longest was Cotillard versus Watts. Mm -hmm. And the way I leaned, eventually, this is what I told myself anyway, and maybe you'll accuse me of ageism here, but I, I wonder if Cotillard is just warming up. Yeah. And not that Watts isn't capable of fantastic of things and clearly has a lot of years ahead of her where she could deliver that. In the last few years, Cotillard has just been, you know, a juggernaut, really. And and if I have to pick, I want to see that continue. Mm. Okay. But it was tough. I'll have and a little the other bit more one, on that in a sec. The other one was uh, Bill Murray versus Tilda Swinton. I mean, for one thing, it's just a bizarre matchup. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to conceive of those two in the same acting universe. I didn't have think you'd have a tough any... time with that at all, though. Well, for you, Mr. Wes Anderson fan. Yeah. I mean, you you can't. I, I'm not ready yet to think of a world without Bill Murray. Okay. So Tilda had to go, but but it was it was a tough one. Well, this is how difficult I found this whole thing to be. I tried to vote. I got eight of them. I answered half of them pretty quickly. Looked at him, said, yep, I know where I'm going. Within a few seconds, I voted. I couldn't even narrow it down to one I found the toughest. I have three here, and I had eight of them, Josh, that I haven't voted in yet because oh, man. I can't bring myself to make the choice. Are we going to put so deadlines hard. on these rounds? Well, you're you're going to need a deadline. I'm going to need a deadline, and I'll probably just end up blindly picking like I was answering on the SAT or something <laughs> and trying to finish in time because it just hurts my brain to think about some of these choices. But I'm with you. The first one I wrote down in terms of being the toughest to consider was Marion Cotillard versus Naomi Watts, because they just are similar actresses for me. And I love both of them. And I've been a long champion of Naomi Watts. There's a fearlessness to them. There's a real versatility to them. And they're both so talented. And I'm glad you mentioned it, because the one thing I am a little bit worried about, but I think is perhaps inevitable in what Film Spotting Madness is, as we talk about it being potential, mm -hmm. we talk about it being what we're going to see from them in the future. Are the matchups naturally tilted in favor of the younger actor or actress? Is that why <sighs> Cotillard is winning this? And if it was a few years back, right. five or ten years ago, Naomi Watts could be up against anybody and she'd go through it like a buzzsaw. But now that she's a little bit older, here we are, just like in Maps to the Stars and in every Hollywood movie, mm -hmm. we are, of course, mm -hmm. giving short shrift to the quote-unquote aging actress. We'll have to see how the votes play out, yeah, if that becomes a pattern. For me, the other ones that I thought were really hard, among those eight, the three that stood out in addition to Cotillard and Watts, I had Michael Shannon versus Michelle Williams. Similar performers in the sense that they are kind of chameleons and they're both known for their indie performances and their intense performances. And you know how much I love Michael Shannon. His performance in Take Shelter, I think, was my number mm -hmm. one performance of that year. But that's how good I think Michelle Williams is, that I think that battle is as tough as it is. The other one, one of those up-and-comer matchups pitted against each other, Ryan Gosling versus my beloved Anna Kendrick. Yeah, 
That one's a little easier for me, but I can see you struggling with that. Just imagine there's a room and a door opens and Gosling and Kendrick both walk in at the same time. Who owns that room, Adam? Well, that's not fair because <laughs> nobody takes a room away from Ryan Gosling. Well, there nobody. you go. Kendrick can sing all she wants. <laughs> She's not taking that room. He's just standing in the corner. No, the presence is... It's too strong. So you it's, have your, it's a tractor beam. You have your answer. It just pulls you in. So I guess I'm going Gosling, which actually, even though I haven't voted in it yet, I was leaning for okay, Gosling good. in that one. Okay, so what about the one you think is the most intriguing? Whatever you take intriguing to mean, the one maybe that you can't wait to see how the results shake out. Yeah, that, that's that's the way I would define it, because I know where I'm going on this matchup, but I'm really curious to see where the votes will fall. That's Jennifer Lawrence versus Rooney Mara. Yeah, similar again, right? They're both I think so. of the same age, Yep, seem to be of similar talents. They could probably be cast in a lot of the same movies. I think so, and I think that it'll be interesting also to see Lawrence obviously has the higher profile with the Hunger Games films, and is that going to be held against her? Even though we both talked about how she's very good in there this isn't just one of those yeah take the blockbuster franchise get through it get the paycheck and move on but will people hold that against her when you're thinking of acting talent that's a good question that's a good question because even after certain poll questions where we've mentioned the hunger games we've talked about some of the hunger games movies we both praised her recent performances in those films like crazy on the show maybe I have a false image because I think everybody out there thinks the way I do, and I've come around so much on her. Well, I've been a fan of her really since we saw her in Winter's Bone, and even when I didn't really like the first Hunger Games, I still thought she was good in that movie. So for me, this seems like a runaway, like, 75-25. I think Jennifer Lawrence runs away with it. Yeah, you're probably right in the end. Okay, well, we will certainly see. For me, the most intriguing matchup is the one you mentioned as one of your toughest. It's Bill Murray versus Tilda Swinton. (laughs) I love that one, too, that this shook out this way. And we did have some fun behind the scenes kind of seeding these a little bit. But when those matchups came up, those weren't really manufactured or manipulated. And you see Jennifer Lawrence versus Rooney Mara, similar type actors. And then you see Tilda Swinton and Bill Murray, these (laughs) These great character actors, but who can also lead a movie if need be, and just singular talents. I think of them as singular talents, and I think of them as similar in some ways. Of course, Wes Anderson likes using both of them. You, that's right. You do have to, yeah, didn't, oh my goodness, didn't I ask, were they in a movie together? Of course they were. Yeah. In Budapest. Uh, you do have to say, though, that Swinton has the more, has the greater range. I mean, we've just seen her, not that Murray is limited at all. He's certainly proven that in the last 15 years, maybe, um, that he has a bigger range than when we first came to know him. But I I still think if you look at the types of films they've done and the types of performances they've given, Swinton beats him in that category. So we'll see how much weight people give that. So for me, that was one of the eight easy ones. I voted for Swinton right away. Uh, And I like Bill Murray, but that was just no brainer for me. It was Tilda Swinton all the way. I think Bill Murray is going to beat her, though, pretty handily. I hope so. Of course you do. A few other matchups of note. We do have a true detective battle. It's McConaughey versus Woody Harrelson in round one. We have an Irish actors matchup, even though, as we've said, it really doesn't matter who faces Michael Fassbender, but he's up against his fellow countrymen. And yes, I know that Michael Fassbender was born technically in Germany, but he's Irish. Of course you would know that. I know that. (laughs) You know, the restraining order keeps me a certain distance, but I can look at Wikipedia. I think. I think I'm okay there. So, Fassbender versus Gleason. We have a Dark Knight Rises battle, though I think Ben Mendelsohn, who we love, is going to have a tough time against Tom Hardy. It was nice knowing you, Ben. Yeah, sorry. 
we almost had in an earlier incarnation of the first round, we had a blue Valentine battle in the bracket, Ryan Gosling versus Michelle Williams. That would have been harder for that me. That would have been hard, wouldn't Gosling it? Gosling Kendrick, oh, yeah. It would have been a good one, but... We will never know how that one would have come out. We can't wait to see how you guys are going to vote in these. And we do have a page set up over at filmspotting.net that has all 16 of these first-round matchups. You vote in it just like you vote in a poll question at filmspotting.net. There just happens to be 16 of them on a page. It should take you only about three minutes to complete unless you're like me and really indecisive and you see just how difficult this is, in which case it might take you up to three hours. (laughs) maybe three weeks time well spent yeah it is all time well spent there are some great matchups here so we can't wait to have some fun with this i don't even know at this point we're gonna have to talk to sam behind the scenes i'm not sure exactly how long the first round is going to last at least a week we're going to sort of do this in conjunction with the ncaa tournament we will get it down to 16 and down to a final four and then crown a champion eventually so all the information you need it's right there in the top stories filmspotting.net just look for film spotting madness all right when we come back we'll find out if any of these favorite actors made it on our lists of movie characters on the fringe the film spotting top five is next stay with us i can ever pay attention to anything you ever say to me it's an awful affliction don't know it's just never come naturally Apologies Donation time, and of course, we like to highlight our featured artist this week. A great, great poll from producer Sam with Colleen Green, her new album, I Want to Grow Up. The L.A.-based Green has a couple of California dates at the end of this month in L.A. and then in Santa Ana. Then on to the East Coast for a show in Baltimore before heading to Paris and the U.K. for a few dates. More information at colleengreen.bandcamp.com. That brings us to donations, and we do have a new $5 a month donor, Josh. He is Matthew in San Bruno, California, a new Silver Club donor, Emily in Hermitage, Tennessee, and a gold-level donor, Megan in Seattle. This was prompted by being annoyed that you weren't nominated for the annual Best Podcast Awards. Thanks, Film Spotting, a listener donator since 2006. So thank you, Megan, and if it makes you feel any better, or maybe it won't because... You'll feel like you wasted your money. We didn't even know we weren't nominated for that yeah. award. So I, it, now it we didn't feel terrible. Me before. Yeah, now, now we need more money to feel better. <laughs> no, thank you very much for that. I think it's podcastawards.com. We've been nominated a few times over the years. I don't okay. think we've ever won. Again, we weren't even aware. We didn't really push it. So we're not going to be too broken Maybe up about it. Year. But we love your support and we love your anger, Megan. We also got a gold level donation from Gil Fuster. He's in Melbourne, 
Australia. I'm a monthly donor, but 10 years is something special, so I wanted you to have a birthday present. I've been a listener since the very early days. Not sure the exact episode, but as soon as I stumbled across film spotting on iTunes, I went back and grabbed every episode available. Even in the very early days, it was an amazing show with a smart format and a refreshing emphasis on discussion over binary good-bad thumbs up-down assessments. Over the years, you've kept me company while I go jogging, drive to work, get stuck in airports, and get lost in various countries around the world. You've led me to countless cinematic discoveries made me laugh often and occasionally forced me to take sides. Team Josh Farago, by the way. And don't even get me started on how wrong the usually insightful Michael Phillips is about Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Nobody's going to forgive him for that no. Raiders review. And also, recently, not quite as bad, but the negative take just on the ending of Unforgiven right. was enough to anger a lot of people. Yeah, so. people got upset about that. Love to have Michael it's like on they the show. forgot that he uh, he liked the entire film right. up until that and point. said it was so. pretty great. Okay. A $10 a month donor, a new $10 a month donor. He is Andy Gottman in Bella Vista, Arkansas. He says, I just wanted to drop a note in conjunction with my $10 monthly donation. I've given a couple times in the past, back when Maddie was making up facts about donors' locations, and Adam would always bring up his childhood experiences in Bella Vista, Arkansas. It is true. Andy is, I think, maybe our only listener ever from Bella Vista. And whenever that name would come up during donations, I'd have to point out that back when I was 9 or 10, my family went on a summer trip to this resort in Bella Vista. And I want to say my parents got conned into, they got like a free clock black and white TV okay. set, some portable TV that was worthless. <laughs> to stay there? To sit in on a sales oh, pitch. Oh, sure, and sure. And somehow they got talked into it. I think... I think we own property in Bella Vista, Arkansas. <laughs> I don't know why that. <laughs> maybe film spotting should have its annual summer retreat there. There so, you go. Thank you, Andy, for the reminder. He says, I've been listening since about episode 100 and reviewed the available back catalog, too. I've always had difficulty finding someone to talk to about my love of film, especially those that might be a little outside the mainstream. And Sam, Maddie, Josh, your guest hosts, and especially Adam, have always served as those surrogates. I wanted to give more regularly to honor your 10 years of entertainment and fun. Congrats on 10, and hopefully we'll get 10 more. Thanks, Andy. I also got this note from Suzanne Stock. She's from Iowa City, Iowa. After the show in which you reviewed Boyhood, my brother Tyson sent you an email extolling the brilliance of Richard Linklater. You read and discussed his email during the bonus content on a later show. I've watched my brother graduate from Grinnell College. I went to Carleton. Sorry, Adam. Graduate from medical school and move from the rural Midwest to big city Chicago. In that time, I don't know that I've ever seen him as excited as when you replied to his email and announced that you would be discussing it during bonus content. So thank you for that. As soon as that bonus content was posted, I'd listen to you read and discuss Tyson's email at length. That was my first experience with film spotting, and of course I got hooked. I haven't missed an episode since. Well, of course, I love hearing from listeners in Iowa City. Still make it back there from time to time, and we need to have a little film spotting meetup the next time I'm around. Maybe we can grab a few drinks with Suzanne and company. But Tyson sounds like a Grinnellian who has ended up far more successful and started out far smarter than I ever did, having gone on to medical school. And he did send us a great email that we featured in bonus content. As Suzanne mentioned, I wanted to feature part of it here because we were discussing some of these different filmmakers and Boyhood and Linklater and how they rank compared to guys like Tarantino and P.T. Anderson. And he said this, although he may not be the visual poet that other auteurs are, I do believe that what he is doing is as ambitious and cinematic as any other working filmmaker. Whereas Tarantino seems to be increasingly concerned with being a badass and P.T. Anderson's films are becoming more and more opaque and unknowable and to my eyes becoming a bit emperor has no clothes in terms of thematic substance. <laughs> Linklater simply continues... Can you make it through continues. this, Adam? You're, oh, you're getting I'm, flustered. I'm, 
I, I might faint. I'm, I, I need some air. Linklater simply continues to make things that interest him as a human being. Sam really nailed it when I forwarded it to him. He responded, right about Tarantino, wrong about PTA, right about Linklater. Though, of course, I think he's kind of wrong about Tarantino <laughs> as well. But, man, I can't imagine what Tyson thought listening to our discussion of inherent vice. I like how efficient Sam is there. Just yeah, rendering his judgment. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So thank you, Tyson. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, everyone who is a new donor to the show. We appreciate every bit of support that we get. Hey, this is Mark Duplass, and you're listening to Film Spotting. This is the best thing to wear for the day, you understand. Yeah. Because I don't like women in skirts. And the best thing is to wear pantyhose or some pants under a short skirt, I think. Then you have the pants under the skirt. And then you can pull the stockings up over the pants underneath the skirt. Mm-hmm. And you can always take off the skirt and use it as a cape. So I think this is the best costume for the day. Okay. I have to think these things up, you know. Mother wanted me to come out in a kimono, so we had quite a fight. Welcome back to Film Spotting. A very memorable clip there from the documentary Grey Gardens, the 1979 film from the Maisel's brothers, David and Albert. And Josh, I wanted to feature that clip here coming into our top five for a couple reasons. One, because it is going to help us transition a little bit into this top five characters on the fringe, tying in with our review earlier in the show of Buzzard, but also because I think we do need to pay a moment of tribute to Albert Maisel's, who passed away March 5th at the age of 88. Of course, if you know their work in terms of being pioneering documentarians, they gave us Gimme Shelter, the documentary about the Rolling Stones at Altamont, Grey Gardens, of course, but my favorite, one that I didn't see until after we had done a top five list on the show a few years back of our top five documentaries. I had Grey Gardens in that top five. Later saw Salesman from 1968, which was a featured part of my syllabus when I taught a Cinema Verite class at the University of Chicago's Graham School a few summers ago. That film about door-to-door Bible salesmen, I actually like even better than Grey Gardens or Gimme Shelter. Mm. I think that's their essential film. Though, if you're interested in more of what Albert Maisel's did, specifically as a cameraman, the film Primary is essential direct cinema viewing. This is the Robert Drew film from 1960 that follows Hubert Humphrey and Jack Kennedy as they're campaigning for the Wisconsin primary, obviously running for president there. The famous shot that sort of is the precursor to the Copa tracking shot in Scorsese's Goodfellas is Albert Maisel's with these new lighter weight cameras that they could actually be handheld and they could do things with the camera they couldn't do before around 1960. He follows Jack Kennedy into this hall to give a speech. And it's just one of those sort of breathtaking moments in the movie that made you realize there was something new going on with this documentary form and really gave you a sense of what it was like to be in that moment, to be John Kennedy running for president in that moment. Wasn't that on your list of top five tracking shots? Yeah, I think think it it made that list. Exactly. So both those films, primary and salesman, as I mentioned, I do think are required viewing if you are someone who's interested in documentary cinema, if you haven't seen them already. And as I said, wanted to pay tribute there to Albert Maisel's. Now, Grey Gardens also made another top five list of mine that has a direct relationship to this top five in question, characters on the fringe. Back on Film Spotting 168, this is now almost eight years ago, 
Sam and I shared our top five movie misfits. And I had Jack and Ennis from Brokeback Mountain. I had Big Edie and Little Edie, Bouvier Beale, who we heard there in that clip from Grey Gardens. The Outsiders, you've got the Greasers in The Outsiders, that Francis Ford Coppola movie. Antoine, the young boy from The 400 Blows and Private Pile from Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. So those were my misfits. Very similar in some ways, though, to characters on the fringe. And I think that might help us as I wanted to be sure to avoid any overlap with that list. Talk about how we came up with this list, what criteria we had for characters on the fringe. What did that mean to you? Well, I did think of Grey Gardens fairly early on, although they're almost beyond the fringe mm-hmm. in that documentary, the, the way they're living on their own in this decrepit house. When other people enter and there's there's isn't there a dining room scene mm-hmm. there's a celebration it's almost like you, you, where are these people coming from like we've come from another planet we're so far off the fringe so um i i don't know if um any of my characters are quite that far out there i did think of them if anything unites the people on this list it's a disregard for societal conventions and sometimes that means laws so they could just be breaking laws or, or be dangerous, but sometimes it's just conservative tradition. It's these the way society has always functioned and is supposed to function. These characters are just moving along their own trajectory. Um, maybe circumstances have forced them to do that. Maybe they've chosen to do it in, in the form of rebellion, but that's the one thing that does unite them. I did set aside a subgroup, and maybe you'll have some of these, just because I was trying to get my hands around this a little bit and thought it'd be easier to put aside teen outcasts. I figured that could be um, its own list, perhaps. So I'm thinking of Donnie Darko types. Mm. Certainly, I consider Gyllenhaal's Donnie Darko as a fringe character, but there are many high schoolers who could fall into that category. So I sort of set that aside. Well, that's a good distinction, too, in the sense that it sounds like you and I think myself as well went with strictly choices who are adults. So they have established some sense of identity and that still puts them on the yeah, fringe maybe versus that's part someone, of it. someone who's in junior high or high school Working who's their still through figuring it. out who they are and what they stand for. They may in fact be on the fringes, but who knows if five years down the road, they won't figure right. it all out and be somebody different. Right. So get us started. Your number five character on the fringe. All right. So I also took this opportunity to get started a little early on some blind spotting, which we talked about on last week's show. This isn't one of those films that made our official list, the one we haggled over. It's also one I'm sure you've seen, Richard Linklater's Slacker. Uh, This is his breakout film from 1991, a series of vignettes that are mostly these rambling conversations with fringe artists, conspiracy theorists, college dropouts. You also have unemployed college graduates. Apparently, these are the folks who form the entire population of Austin, Texas. That's that's what I learned from Slacker. Can't wait to go there. We're going to do a <laughs> no. phone spotting live show there someday. And I want to see all these people. We're going to find we out. Probably will. I did figure, though, knowing that much about the film, one of them had to qualify as a character on the fringe. So I did check it out. And man, it was hard to choose. There are... Some interesting people in this movie, Uh, but I'm going to go with the one who's identified as the hitchhiker awaiting the true call. That's how he's identified in the credits. I love looking at the credits for this film. You get you don't get names. You get Dostoevsky wannabe. Yeah, descriptions. Recluse in bathrobe and it all fits. This hitchhiker is played by Charles Gunning, though, and he's a chain smoker in this dark suit. He says when he gets picked up that he's walking home from a funeral. He's just one of these guys, very much like Marty Jakotansky in Buzzard, who could care less 
about how the world is supposed to operate and what it thinks of him. And he especially makes this clear in the answers he gives to some students who interview him for a school project when they come across him and he just expresses this utter disdain for everyday jobs. What do you do to earn a living? You mean work? To hell with the kind of work you have to do to earn a living. All it does is fill the bellies of the pigs who exploit us. Hey, look at me, I'm making it. I may live badly, but at least I don't have to work to do it. What would it take for you to get a job? Hey, I'll get a job when I hear the true call. You know, the true call. I know when I hear it. I love the little buzzard-like con that he pulls to. In this scene, there's an outdoor restaurant, and he bums a cigarette from someone after hiding the one that he already has in his hands, puts the fresh one behind his ear, and then he also aggressively demands a light. You know, he has that Marty aspect to him of the other people are always doing the wrong thing, even Mm -hmm. though he's the one behaving outside of conventional standards. In other words, it's your fault if I cheat you. He has a little bit of that in him. So... Slacker as as a collection of vignettes, it can be a little bit hit or miss, I found. Um, sometimes it has to do with the acting. I mean, this is a huge, expansive cast that Linklater has here. But I think Gunning's scene, that struck me as one of the strongest. That's definitely a film I need to revisit. But I have seen Slacker. I remember back in the day when I was an aspiring filmmaker, I figured I had to see the movie that inspired so many other yeah. filmmakers to pick up a camera because they thought, well, if Linklater can do that. Maybe I can as well. So that was the guise under which I saw Slacker way back when. It's a great pick. As I mentioned, I wanted to not have any overlap with my misfits, though of the five I mentioned, maybe only the greasers would really qualify for this list for me, the fringe characters as I've conceived it, which is a little bit differently than you, though, Josh, a key phrase I kept in mind is one you actually threw out initially when we were discussing this. It wasn't just characters who don't abide by society's conventions, but who aren't successful by society standards. Success was key to me. Money, of course, is always a part of success. So I was really drawing from Marty Jakutansky and the movie that inspired this buzzard, where there had to be that kind of working class element to this. And what was helpful to me was thinking about the scene in buzzard. And there are multiple examples of this, but the one scene in buzzard where he basically gets ripped off spending about eight bucks on hot pockets and Mountain Dew at the convenience store. Then he literally gets ripped off by the dude behind the counter for another five bucks. And I remember watching that scene and thinking about how significant losing that $5 is to Marty before he even says, that's all the money I had. We know that's all the money he has, how important that five bucks is and something many of us probably take for granted. And characters like these in my list can't take even $5 for granted. So having a very clear sense of how much money a character has in his or her pockets was something I thought about. My number five is Francis from Francis Ha, the Noah Baumbach film, of course, starring Greta Gerwig. And all these picks, as I've said, there's not only that socioeconomic status that defines them as being on the fringe, but it's sort of a chicken and egg thing where their identity, their choices are what lead to that lack of economic success. So they're outsiders in ways that go beyond the financial. And here Gerwig as Francis is a dancer living in Brooklyn, but she's not really trained or talented enough to support herself. There's a scene where someone asks her, what do you do? And she says, it's kind of hard to explain. He says, because what you do is complicated. And she says, because I don't really do it. (laughs) 
there's that financial struggle element where she lives with her best friend, Sophie, and ends up on her own because she can't afford to move to Tribeca with her roommate. And she has to live on the couch, basically, with a couple of friends for a while, ends up back at her alma mater, working, waiting tables. And early in the movie, there's a great scene where she gets a tax refund. And that joy on her face when she opens up a check and sees probably just a few hundred bucks in there. But for her, it means she can splurge. She can go out and do something on the town. She immediately calls up a friend, asks a guy out to dinner and insists on paying, even though her credit card is declined. And that great scene where she has to run around town looking for an ATM and she has the line that really is her defining line. I'm not a real person yet. In addition to all that, there's that lack of personal success where she's referred to by one of her guy friends as undateable. Everyone around her, including Sophie, is in some kind of romantic relationship. They've all found someone. And if I'm recalling right, Frances doesn't even really seem to consider herself to be in the game. Dating isn't something she's really that concerned with. She's just fun to hang out with, but not someone, probably anybody who's really serious about a relationship, would ever want to be serious with her because she's so unserious about herself. And this, too, was a movie, for me, a little bit of an aspirational pick, only because we reviewed it on the show. As I recall, we both liked it, Mm -hmm. gave it a positive review, really liked Gerwig's performance, didn't love the movie as much as many did. In fact, our friends over at The Dissolve, when they did their recent top 50 films of the past decade so far, so 2010 to 2015, Francis Ha was number nine. So it seems very high to me, probably wouldn't even be in my top 50, but a movie largely because of that character and the way she inhabits that character on the fringe, one I really want to see again. It's sort of like how they say that um, other dimensions exist all around us, but we don't have the ability to perceive them. That's, That's what I want out of a relationship. Or just life, I guess. Love. I sound stoned. (laughs) I'm not stoned. Thanks for dinner. Bye. Oh, bye. You know what puts her on the fringe, if I'm remembering it correctly, is is she has this lack of... I guess ambition, yeah. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, but but in our sets, society, it exactly, is exactly it yeah. sets her so apart, and she and and that's the tension of the movie: is uh, are we going to blame her for this or admire her mm-hmm. for this? Yeah, good pick. My number four, I'm going to pull a title from our Korean auteurs marathon. In fact, I'm going to go with your favorite film from that 2013 series, Adam. That's Tess Suk, played by Hyun Kyun Lee in Three Iron. Tessuk is this mystery figure. He's a nearly silent young man who sneaks into homes while the owners are on vacation. He's not a thief, though. Uh, the weird thing is, I mean, if anything, he takes care of these properties while he's there. Right. He does the laundry. He repairs some appliances. I, you know, I, I hope he moves into my house someday. I would leave a list out for him. And then when the owners do return, it's sort of like this benevolent spirit has been around to tidy things up. During one of these visits, he doesn't realize, though, that this abused housewife has been home the whole time and she's been quietly watching him. They do end up heading out together and she joins him in this weird outsider lifestyle that he lives. Now, even though this form of home invasion is fairly benign, it still goes against the grain of society. So when they do get caught at one point, Tessak is sent to jail. This is directed by Kim Ki-duk, and it has a very poetic, magical realism air to it. It creates this sense that Tessak has really established 
a parallel world of his own that that he's just you wonder if society would ever even know he was around and that's sort of another element of it too that we talked about is that he's such a fringe dweller there's the possibility he doesn't exist at all you you could also describe three iron a little bit as a ghost story mm-hmm. i think Absolutely, you could. You're right that that was my favorite film from that Carino Tours marathon, and yet I didn't even consider it for this list, and that character couldn't be a more appropriate choice for a character on the fringe. Great pick. My number four is Bruno from L'Enfant, or The Child, the 2005 film from the Dardennes. It was a Palme d'Or winner. It stars Jeremy Renier as Bruno. He's 20 years old. He just has had a baby with his 18-year-old girlfriend, Sonia. And this is a man who has no plan whatsoever. He's just getting by on welfare, small-time crimes, burglary. And Ebert, in his review of this film, has a line that so perfectly describes Marty from Buzzard as well. He lives entirely in the moment. That's how he describes Bruno, but so fitting for Marty as we go back to the scene where he's eating the spaghetti, just with no regard for what's happening around him or how he's eating it, how it's being consumed. He just takes it all in and sort of gourds himself on it because that's how he is. And that character who, as we recall, gets like $200 in his pocket. And what does he do? He goes and drops 180 of it at a fancy hotel. He's living in the moment. And Bruno in L'Enfant doesn't fully consider the consequences or repercussions or ever plan anything at all. That's really what defines him, I think, as the outsider that he is, whether it's pragmatism or principle, a sense of some kind of morality, whatever guides most people's choices day to day, Bruno is wholly lacking either of those. And we see it most blatantly when he decides to sell his baby for some quick cash. The key here isn't that he's so desperate that He sells the baby because he sees no other option. It's really the only viable way to make some money to get some food to survive. He sells it because it's what he does. He sells it because he can. The child's replaceable. He actually tells Sonia at one point, we can have another one. That's an obscene level of solipsism, and it makes for a tough watch at times, like a lot of Dardenne films do. But it's really what makes him one of the fringiest characters, really, in all of cinema. Yeah, my number three has a little more of that desperation that you're referring to, economic desperation. It's Wendy, played by Michelle Williams in Wendy and Lucy. I also think she stands a little bit apart because a lot of these picks, including Bruno, are very prickly types. That's maybe a kind word for him. Uh, He's maybe more a straight-out anti-hero. That's who some of these fringe characters are. But Williams and uh, the director, Kelly Reichert, they give us an extremely sympathetic movie fringe dweller in Wendy. She's this 20-something vagrant. She has some sort of vague plan to start a new life in Alaska. That's what she tells people. And uh, she just has her dog, Lucy, along as her only companion. The movie has this real understanding of the danger of living on the fringe. When, When you put yourself apart and aside like this, it just takes one stroke of bad luck um, for things to turn catastrophic. There's just, you're also rejecting in a way any of those support systems maybe that would otherwise be there. And so when Wendy's junker car breaks down, it does lead to this series of disastrous events. Not a lot of jobs around here, huh? (laughs) I'll say. I don't know what the people do all day. Used to be a mill, but it's been closed a long time now. Don't know what they do. Can't get a job without an address anyway. <laughs> or a phone. You can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. It's all fixed. That's why I'm going to Alaska. 
Yeah, they need people. For me, Wendy and Lucy was a cementing of Michelle Williams uh, as an acting force to be reckoned with. I know she showed hints of it before in some interesting performances, but this was the real revelation for me of her ability to just quietly burrow into a character. And of course, she would make the even better Meeks cutoff with Reichert after this. Both of those are well worth your time. And as I say this now, I'm thinking of Williams as someone in the film spotting madness right. tournament against Michael Shannon, uh, how hard <laughs> it's going to be for folks to pick her. Um, Shannon. Oh man. I, I went with Williams. Yeah. Did you too? I haven't voted yet. That was one, of those, you, that was one of those you couldn't, but pull I, the knew, on, huh? I knew that she would vote for Williams. It was hard enough for me that I'm not sure yet. I love them both so much. All right. Yeah, I really do. And that was one, Wendy, strongly considered by me. I was so sure it was going to make your list. I went ahead and left it off, but an honorable mention for sure. My number three is one I'm going to let the characters themselves do the heavy lifting for me, Josh, because I love the movie. I love the performances. I love the characters. And I love their back and forth banter with each other. Miami Beach, that's where you could score. Anybody can score there, even you. In New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. They're laughing at you on the street. Ain't nobody laughing at me on the street. Turn your back, I seen them laughing at you, fella. Oh, what the hell do you know about women anyway? When's the last time you scored, boy? What's the matter? I only talk about a confession. We're not talking about me now. Well, when's the last time you've been to confession? It's between me and my confessor. And I'll tell you another thing. Frankly, you're beginning to smell. Of course, well, I was going to say of course, but Josh, I think you haven't seen this movie. I think this is one of those films you copped to in your blind spotting last week, your top 10, Midnight Cowboy. It is. The John Schlesinger film discussed here on the show as part of our new Hollywood marathon. You heard in the scene Joe Buck, the cowboy from Texas, trying to make it as a stud hustler in New York, being laughed at by people on the streets in his getup, can't collect when he does pull off a trick, which are few and far between. He's so unsuccessful, he smells bad. With Ratso Rizzo, who doesn't change his underwear, walks with a limp. He's trying to get by as a con man on the streets, eating in that scene some kind of gruel prepared on a hot plate in a dirty, condemned apartment, which they finally lose at one point, and that's when their desperation goes to another level. They're one of the oddest couples you'll ever find, linked only by their loneliness, by their isolation from society and their longing for a different life. I cannot wait until you finally see Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, that was the second one after Slacker of the movies that I knew would be ripe for this list I hadn't seen. I was only able to fit one of them in. My number two is Mark Lewis, played by Carl Bohm in Peeping Tom. This was one of my first instincts as well, and it was confirmed by J. Bronk Sampson, who suggested it on my Facebook page when I was looking for ideas for this list. Mark Lewis is the psycho protagonist of Michael Powell's 1960 serial killer thriller, which is about this aspiring filmmaker who records the expressions of women as he kills them. Key sequences here are shown from his camera's point of view. The danger element here is why this character came to mind after seeing Buzzard. In that movie, Marty's fringeness, we're not quite sure for much of the film whether or not it's going to turn violent. That's sort of hanging over the picture. Here, though, we do know from the first-person POV murder that takes place before the opening credits that Mark Lewis is this calculating killer. After that sequence, we learn that he's this pretty quiet member of the film crew, actually. He doesn't interact with others much, and he even pretends to be a renting tenant in the building that he owns. It's just a little detail that reveals a lot about his character. 
he's this fringe character, I guess, more as a recluse, you could say, but he's also out on the edge for the way he's allowed his love for film to become this maniacal obsession. The footage of the killings that he's collecting are meant to be part of this deranged documentary that he's working on or planning. Would you please stand over there? I don't know. No, someone's here. They won't come in. They'll wait outside. What's the difference? The difference is a perfect film. I've waited a long time for this, and so have you. No one must interrupt it. We'll be caught. What does that matter? What? You stand to lose a job as an extra. Extra? Stand in. I stand to lose nothing. Now, Martin Scorsese, in David Thompson's interview book with him, he likened the Mark Lewis character to a film director, actually. He said, Eight and a Half captures the glamour and enjoyment of filmmaking, while Peeping Tom shows the aggression of it, how the camera violates. From studying them, you can discover everything about people who make films, or at least people who express themselves through films. And this made me think that Scorsese here maybe is hinting at why artists are often considered to be fringe figures themselves. Mm -hmm. They're sometimes talked about in that way, though hopefully not to the degree of uh, Mark Lewis and Peeping Tom. Yeah, he's a creepy character. That's a great film. It was part of our Powell Pressburger Marathon a few years ago here on the show before you joined the show, Josh. And even though it's Michael Powell exclusively, it's not a Pressburger film, we felt compelled to include that in the marathon. We closed with it. It's really, really good. My number two is the only character on my list where the word desperation doesn't ever apply. Certainly not economic desperation, though he's not wealthy. He doesn't seem to be wanting for anything material. And I know this as well is one you haven't seen, Josh. It's the 1980 Errol Morris film, Gates of Heaven. The character is Danny Harberts. He's one of the brothers who helps run his family's pet cemetery. And he's just this sensitive lost soul who tried the go to college, get a business degree, get a job route and couldn't hack it. It just wasn't for him. And so he spends his time now at the cemetery, working the land, living in a cabin, overlooking this beautiful valley and playing his guitar. In former years, I, I, I would write like three and four songs a week. And I've got a, a little notebook where I've got about probably 50 songs. And, uh, you know, you always have the, the dream in the back of your mind that someday these songs will be published and you'll be famous. But uh, as you get older, you start realizing that maybe those are just what they were, dreams, you know, nothing more. But uh, dreams are ni- nice to have, something to look forward to. You know, it, it gives you more satisfaction, something that you, you can think about. Of course, you could make the case that anybody who works at a pet cemetery is on the fringes because... They don't really exist anywhere. This was probably the only one in existence for a long time. I'm not sure if there are more now. But his lack of conventional success is only heightened by the presence of his brother, Philip, who was in the rat race for a long time, was really successful, got out of it working in insurance where he became a sales manager and was kind of the boss, but now has found that that wasn't really fulfilling either. And he's sort of just as lost as his brother is because that's the only world he knows and he doesn't know how to exist in a world that isn't that structured and isn't driven by material things. And in his interviews, Philip, we see all of his trophies and his various accolades. And he talks about how in meetings, whether it was with prospective clients or his own employees, he'd showcase all those trophies in front of him to try to impress them. That's not what his brother Danny is like at all. And that's mainly because he never had that kind of ambition and probably never will. 
He just wants to make music. The one dream he talks about there is of being a musician. That might be a satisfying way to make a living, being able to write his songs, make his music, and have someone else enjoy them. And I think in my Ebert class last summer, which was a tribute to Roger Ebert class, and we talked about movies that he specifically championed, he was a huge champion of Gates of Heaven. It opened the course. And I think during the discussion afterwards, I said I wanted to basically take Danny Harberts in and just give him a big hug. He's that lost and that that's sensitive, as I mentioned. So he's someone that is on the fringe and trying to find his way, but also seems a little bit content. And one of those things, Josh, where I was watching the movie this second time in class, and I remember thinking how many people work their whole lives and try to generate the type of money it would take to buy a cabin like that in Northern California, where they can just relax and do nothing all day, except be out on the land and play their guitar and look out at that amazing view. And he's got that. He's got it. In some ways, he's figured out the answer, but most people need to work for it. They need to be part of the game in order to get to that point. It's all about getting there, whereas he's already gotten it. So it's a fascinating, fascinating film, and we're actually going to have a little bit more on this movie next week on the show because the Criterion Collection Blu-ray edition of it is coming out March 24th. Yeah, and that's one I will probably catch up with before then. I, I knew it would be likely fodder for this list just from what I've read about it and figuring there's got to be a character in there that would be considered a fringe character as there was in Slacker. Yeah, the movie is definitely full of them. That brings us to our number one characters on the fringe, but we do have a guest submission here, Josh. It turns out we were able to get in contact with the writer-director and co-star of the new film Buzzard, which we both reviewed and recommended earlier in the show. And we asked him for his favorite character on the fringe. Hey, Adam, Josh, and Sam, and maybe Michael. This is Joel Petrikas, writer and director of the new film Buzzard, and also longtime film spotting listener. For my number one fringe dweller's pick, I'm going with Buffalo 66 by Vincent Gallo. Uh, Gallo plays a haunted ex-con who kidnaps a tap-dancing Christina Ricci in hopes of impressing his parents. Equal parts funny, sad, and surreal, this sometimes overlooked gem follows zero conventions and inspires me to buy heart cookies for my girlfriend once a year. Thanks for getting your hands dirty with Buzzard, and keep up the dickering. Much love from the Midwest. Later. Thank you, Joel, for that. I love Buffalo 66. I was going to say, are you a Buffalo 66 oh, guy? Huge, huge Buffalo 66 fan. Love Vince Gallo's performance in that movie and his direction. I can see now, after seeing Buzzard, why Joel Petrikas would be drawn to that film or maybe be inspired by it. So, great, great pick. Yeah, I do see some similarities between them. I have to revisit that one because I'm not one of the enthusiasts, but I remember being pretty conflicted. I, I do think it has one of its main things it was criticized for was the Christina Ricci character and the treatment of women characters. And I remember that being problematic, but not to the extent where I was ready to dismiss the film entirely, but just kind of feeling uneasy and not quite having my hands around whether it was the good uneasy or the icky uneasy. Well, that's really surprising because Vincent Gallo doesn't have a reputation at all for making movies and having weird relationships with women at all or depicting exactly. them in a problematic way. Exactly. And, and, but I think what I'm saying is I think there's something to that criticism. It struck me that way too, but I, I haven't seen it since it did come out. So okay. well, serves a revisit. I'd prefer to just remain in the dark and think it's <laughs> a borderline masterpiece. So thank you again, Joel, for that. Josh, enlighten us with your number one character on the fringe. So I went with Fred C. Dobbs played by Humphrey Bogart in the treasure of the Sierra Madre. 
we first meet him as this aggressive panhandler in a Mexico town, and he's struggling there, been unable to get reliable work as a laborer. So he's already on the fringe, but he decides to leave it altogether by joining a couple other guys to search for gold in Mexico. Dobbs, though, even with them, he's the group's true fringe character because he's the man apart here in this little group. He has his paranoia. It's his greed. It's his desperation that becomes this alienating force, uh, especially when they do find gold. All of that gets amped up. This is a really vicious Bogart performance. I mean, we know that he's no stranger to playing thugs or gangsters, but he gives Dobbs this especially unhinged cruelty. The way he bears his teeth here, his hair is always wild. He has some great antisocial speeches as well, including this fireside soliloquy where he tries to convince himself that he doesn't really believe in the idea of a conscience. Conscience. got a conscience that'll pester you to death. But if you don't believe you got one, what can it do to you? Makes me sick, all this talking and fussing about nonsense. This is sort of a star rite of passage, I think, for a lot of big names to play a villain at some point in their career, which is why it's interesting that Sierra Madre came, I think, about six years after Bogart's romantic Rick in Casablanca. But I don't know of how many stars went as bad as Bogart does here. Yeah, that's a movie I really love but would like to revisit as well. It's just one I haven't seen in a few years, and that Bogart performance is so, so good. My number one is a case where I didn't plan this transition between number two and one. It just worked out this way, and it worked out well, because I'm going from the lonely soul playing his guitar up in the Northern California hills to the struggling Greenwich Village folk singer, Lewin Davis, my favorite film of a couple of years back when the Coen Brothers movie came out. This is a man, Lewin Davis, who every night is sleeping on couches. He, of course, has a chance to earn some royalties, to be a co-songwriter on this Please Mr. Kennedy song or a player on it who could earn money if it becomes a hit, which kind of the joke here watching the film is we all know it's going to become a hit, but he'd just rather have the 50 bucks or the 100 bucks or whatever he can get in the moment by signing his name on the line. Signs away all those future royalties just to have the money in that moment. And there are so many scenes throughout that movie, going back to how I initially set this up and thinking of Marty from Buzzard, where I find myself paying attention to what... Lewin Davis is paying for exactly how much it is because every dollar he collects, you know, he'll have to spend just to survive. He's someone who has no prospects for the future whatsoever. And like others on this list, he's someone who doesn't think about the future at all, but that's actually not true. You would probably describe him as someone just living hand to mouth, living in the moment. But ironically, he may not have grand ambitions, but all he's doing actually, Josh, is thinking about the future, right? Because all you're thinking about is where's my next meal? Where am I going to sleep tonight? You can't focus on the things you want to focus on because it's literally just about that next moment. He also has a vision for himself too. I he has a vision of himself. It's just a different vision than what everyone else around him But this is my key. This is also, it's beyond the financial. That's also what makes him stand out as a character on the fringe. He does not fit in to this Greenwich Village folk scene. Right. He's always an outsider within that world. He's the one character, remember, as we see Carrie Mulligan and Justin Timberlake and the Troy character, the actor is escaping me, singing 500 miles, and everybody in the crowd at that that beatnik club 
is singing along with it. They're all into it. And he's sitting out there. The camera's just on him. He's looking around like, what's wrong? Why am I the only crazy one who doesn't recognize that this song is bogus, uh -huh. right? He just does not fit into this world at all. And that's the thing, the key scene, right, where he's playing his song at that dinner and the woman decides to start singing along singing the part of his former partner and he finally just stops her like he's not going to play that game where it's basically we all get to just have fun and games singing folk music that's not what he's about he's a professional he tells her he's not just some monkey who's going to perform for them when they want him to so that is definitely one of the other big reasons why he's someone on the fringe he's someone who's not ever willing to change himself to compromise his beliefs, compromise his integrity. Going back to Marty, in a way, in Buzzard, he's a character, too. That's one of the things I really found intriguing about him, who you wouldn't think he stood for much, whether he has a manifesto or not, but he's exactly who he is, moment to moment. He never puts on a show. A couple moments where he has to lie, maybe, to get what he wants, but, like, with his so-called friend, he treats him like crap the whole mm -hmm. time. He tells his bosses at work, really, what he's thinking, what he's doing moment to moment. He doesn't try to hide that stuff. He is who he is. And I think Lewin Davis is another one of those characters who's just not willing to play the game. And by not playing the game, he's always an outsider. He's always going to be a loser. And he's always going to be struggling. This one's early. Joe should like it. If I had wings I'd fly up the river to the one I love. Very well. Oh, honey. What are you doing? What? What is that? What are you doing? Well, it's Mike's part. Don't do that. It's Mike's part. I know what it is. Don't do that. He never finds his people because it's not just the Greenwich village scene that he doesn't fit into. I mean, there are other groups that he connects with or has to work with in the music business. And there's just not a slot for him. No, there's not. Even when he meets up another musician, the character played by John Goodman, the jazz musician, he just right. gets ridiculed the whole time because he's a lowly folk singer. Those are our top five characters on the fringe. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions? I had a lot, actually. Okay. So I'll try to go through these quickly. We haven't mentioned yet that Taxi Driver is in the Pantheon. It is in the Pantheon. Obviously, Travis Bickle would be on this list yep. otherwise. Uh, speaking of the Coen brothers, Jeff Bridges has been a few fringe characters, obviously in The Big Lebowski, but also I'd say Rooster Cogburn in True Grit would qualify mm -hmm. too. Jim Jarmusch, how many of his characters could we put on this list? Some recent options here, Macon Blair in Blue Ruin and Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. I also considered Billy Bob Thornton in Bad Santa and a few other documentary figures here. Timothy Treadwell in Grizzly Man mm -hmm. and Robert Crumb in Crumb. Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider. And some suggestions came in that I liked. Gollum from the Lord of the Rings films <laughs> and Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. But I tried to avoid fantasy for this list. That's something else I set aside. I was looking for real world characters. Okay. Well, you're right. There were so many good ones to choose from. And we got a bunch of great submissions from our Film Spotting Advisory Board. We got them from Twitter, got them from Facebook. Not going to list all of them now, but in addition to Taxi Driver in our Pantheon, there's also Dog Day Afternoon. I think the Pacino character and the John Cazale for character sure. both fit. And a couple movies I put in my penalty box, my personal penalty box, because they've come up a fair amount recently and over the years here on the show. Rupert Pupkin from The King of Comedy and Kabiria from Fellini's Knights of Kabiria. But you really could go through some key directors who 
really traffic in this. And Scorsese's one of them and having some of these anti-hero misfits. But Kelly Reichert, all of her films, really, especially yeah. Wendy and Lucy, who made yours. Robert Brisson, The Dardens. I did have Bruno on my list from L'Enfant. Jim Jarmusch, Werner Herzog, speaking of Timothy Treadwell. I think John Sayles has a fair number of these types of characters in his movies. So you could go right down the list. I wonder if a character like the Elephant Man from that great David about Lynch that. movie yeah. should qualify as a character on the fringe and a character economically deprived without a doubt of course from the great edgar wright we also have ed in Shaun of the dead we've got gary king from the world's end recently and you know another one i did think about well really i thought about it because someone in the fab threw it out there mike shank an american movie i'm mm -hmm. a big fan of that documentary and also jason siegel's character jeff in jeff who lives at home that was a movie i enjoyed quite a bit looking for all the answers hoping to find them in the work of M. Night Shyamalan, which is really his his first problem. So, again, those are our top five characters on the fringe. That was a really fun top five list to do, actually, yeah, I, like that I one. think. So thank you, Joel Petrikas. Thank you, Buzzard, for the inspiration there. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, is where you can find 10 years of show archives, and you can take part in round one of Film Spotting Madness. 32 actors, only one survives to act another day. Again, filmspotting.net. Opening here in Chicago this weekend, we'll highlight a couple movies. The Gene Siskel Film Center is kicking off their 18th annual European Film Festival. It actually started March 6th. It runs through April 2nd. 61 features from 27 nations, the largest showcase in North America for the cinema of European Union nations. More information at siskelfilmcenter.org. We highlighted the Duke of Burgundy and Buzzard playing at the Music Box and director Joel Petrikas will be introducing those screenings, I think both Friday and Saturday night. So again, depending on when you're hearing this show, you might be able to make it out. We have details in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Out on VOD of interest, this horror movie I know very little about, but it's gathering some steam called It Follows. Yeah, first heard about it at Sundance, actually. Mm -hmm. Good reports on it, so okay. hope to catch up with that. Well, it's in the Film Spotting mix for next week as... Out in wide release, Run All Night, the new film starring Ed Harris and Liam Neeson and Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella. I didn't think I needed Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, but aren't most people saying pretty good things about it? I've seen a few good things. I did not realize until this moment that it was Kenneth Branagh's oh. Cinderella, and I don't know if that sways me either way, to be <laughs> honest with you. Well, I'm a big Branagh guy. At the same time, he is the man who gave us the first Thor, which I was not much of a fan of, so... Yeah, I was trying to remember. I knew he did a Marvel movie. It was Thor. I like Thor. Thor was okay. all right. It was a little Shakespearean. You didn't like it? Well, yes, not I, your I kind suppose. Of, not your kind of Shakespearean, huh? I guess not. I guess not. So that's opening in wide release. And we don't really know what we're going to do next week at this point. We're kicking around, talking about Cinderella, maybe movies about royalty. We may go the It Follows route, though. It's a horror movie, and it's probably scary. And, you know, I don't need to be kept up at night in fear. Just leave the lights on. Watch it during the daytime. You'll be all right. Yeah, snuggle with my wife. There She'll you protect go. me, as she always does. We'll see what happens. You can send your suggestions our way. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. 
Our music this week was from Colleen Green. It comes from the new album, I Want to Grow Up. More information is at colleengreen.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.